Muscle-centric medicine is the concept that muscle is the largest organ system in the body. It is mm-hmm. not just for locomotion or training or looking good in a bikini or mankini, whatever. <laughs> Having a six-pack. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or UDT shorts, you know, um, but it is really the system that needs to be optimized. And it's actually the foundation for health. So it is the structural component and the locomotion component, but it is also the metabolic component. Mm-hmm. It is also related to cognition, mood, brain. It is one of the biggest tissues that you can optimize to protect against Alzheimer's. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. In this episode, I share a conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who's a functional medicine physician and practices muscle-centric medicine, which is the concept that skeletal muscle is the largest organ in the body and provides a key to health and longevity. A little bit of background about Dr. Lyon. She received her doctorate in osteopathic medicine from the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine and is board certified in family medicine. She earned her undergraduate degree in human nutrition from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where she studied vitamin and mineral metabolism, chronic disease prevention and management, and the physiological effects of diet composition. She also completed research and a clinical fellowship in nutritional science and geriatrics at Washington University in St. Louis. Now, I first encountered Dr. Lyon when she gave a talk that I attended several years ago at the Institute for Functional Medicine's annual international conference. Her talk and the research she presented on protein and particularly leucine requirements stuck with me, and I was excited to talk more about these concepts and how she uses them with her patients here. But before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. Now, let's get to the episode. So welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm really excited to be here with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon today. Thank you for joining me. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this because I first heard you speak at a Institute for Functional Medicine conference. It was probably now four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. And I heard you speak about the importance of muscle for our health. And I remember you being up on the stage and, you know, yourself being a strong woman and having muscles and being like, wow, I want to be like her. This is, <laughs> it was great. Um, so I'm excited to be having this conversation and to be sharing a lot of your knowledge with my audience. So thanks for taking yeah, the time. Of course. As soon as I got your email, um, <laughs> I was on it. Cause typically I'm really strategic about how I book out because I'm a mother of two very little children and mm-hmm. I have a husband who's actually retired from the SEAL teams and is in medical school now. So the schedule. Is oh, wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize he was in medical school. Yeah. That is a lot to juggle. <laughs> yeah. But when I got your email, I, I really was excited to talk to you because there is this huge dichotomy between health and wellness and then being fitness focused, but really in this concept of training hard and mm-hmm. your group and your followers are individuals who are willing to train hard Mm -hmm. and whether they know it or not, it actually, you know, assuming you don't get too injured, it really sets you up for putting essentially money in the bank Mm -hmm. as the skeletal muscle, because muscle is the organ of longevity and it's, it's, it's its own system. So exciting. I can't wait to 
hear more about it. And I think that listeners will be excited to hear about how all the hard training that they're doing is impacting their health in such a positive way. It is. It's, it's amazing. Could you give a little bit of background just about what drew you into medicine and then how you ended up in this area, which you've termed muscle centric medicine? Yeah, I graduated high school early and I moved in with my godmother and she lived in Kauai. She lived in Hawaii. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And I moved in with her when I was 17 and she actually is in the functional medicine space. It's Liz Lipsky. Oh, and I think okay. Yes. Is. Your listeners yes. might not, but she is considered one of the OGs of mm-hmm. functional medicine, which is essentially root cause medicine. And she was a PhD in nutrition. And I watched her see patients and mm-hmm. I'm very inspired by the impact that nutritional sciences had on individual's ability to heal longevity mm-hmm. and their ability to heal all these different ailments that from a very, very early age changed the trajectory of the value that I wanted to put into society. I mean, it was really about how can I help educate individuals? Mm-hmm. Then I went to uh, university of Illinois and I studied nutritional sciences, vitamin, mineral metabolism under Dr. Donald Lehman. Mm-hmm. who is a world-class protein researcher. He's considered one of the godfathers of protein research. And sitting in class, I will never forget, you know, Illinois, I don't know if you're familiar, but they have tornado warnings. Yeah. And <laughs> I was sitting in nutrition class and we all had to go into this fallout shelter from a tornado. And we were down there for, it must've been two hours. And I was thinking, damn, if there was a major emergency, I can't tell someone to eat an apple. <laughs> it was at that moment, where I said, you know, where I said, man, I want to be able to deeply care for people in case there was an emergency. I want to be able to do it all. Mm-hmm. And then that really changed the trajectory of then going to medicine. And I was into fitness and figure and mm-hmm. dance and gymnastics. So I was um, very active in college, very active throughout my whole life. And I chose mm-hmm. to go to EO school osteopathic school because I was mm-hmm. very interested in the, the sports aspect of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to say it's been a really long road. And then I did <laughs> two years, we were talking two years at university of Louisville in psychiatry, which that was a total disaster. I, I didn't <laughs> like that at all. And then I did three years of training in family medicine. Mm-hmm. And then I did a postdoc at wash U in nutritional sciences, geriatrics and obesity medicine. And it was there where I really saw the impact of skeletal muscle mass on long-term health. Because when you're dealing with the end of life, mm-hmm. you become very conscientious of what individuals are doing midlife. Mm-hmm. And I created the Institute for Muscle-Centric Medicine. That's amazing. A long path, but amazing to see it come full circle from <laughs> yeah, staying with your, yeah, so your godmother. <laughs> yeah, so worthwhile because you see the conversations that are happening now are totally backwards. Mm-hmm. What is very interested, interesting is that we're indoctrinated into this concept of, uh, you know, obesity and being over fat. Mm-hmm. And that is the complete wrong perspective. We are not over fat. We're under muscle. Mm-hmm. Defects in the skeletal muscle happen years before we have any issue in the body. It's a skeletal diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, you know, some of these, you know, when they have metabolic components, they're diseases of skeletal muscle prior. It's not a disease of adipose tissue because Mm -hmm. skeletal muscle is the place where you're going to dispose of extra glucose. It's, you know, um, 
anti-inflammatory. It secretes myokines. It secretes these proteins called myokines. It does all these different things. So as a society, we're, we totally have it backwards, which is one of the reasons why obesity and um, kind of domestication of our planet is so hard to treat because we're working under the wrong paradigm. It would be like you training for the wrong event and then showing right. up the event and wondering why you don't excel. <laughs> right? right, right. And I love that philosophy of, of focusing on being under muscled and how can we build more muscle instead of how can we get rid of more fat? It's sort of that, that functional medicine perspective of give the body what it needs and it is going to create health and take care of itself. Like if we build more muscle, the fat is going to decrease as a side effect. And all the inflammatory markers are going to decrease mm -hmm. because that, you know, you know, when you think about skeletal muscle, it's responsible for the majority of glucose disposal. So carbohydrates, no matter how you frame it, carbohydrates in excess are toxic to the cell. Glucose is toxic to the cell. You mm -hmm. have to get it. You got to get it out of the bloodstream. And skeletal muscle is the primary site where it's going to go. 80%. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. So how would you define, or how do you define muscle centric medicine? And what does that mean as you look at your practice and how you implement this with patients? Muscle centric medicine is the concept that muscle is the largest organ system in the body. It is not just for locomotion or training or looking good in a bikini or mankini, whatever. <laughs> Having a six pack. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or UDT shorts, you know, <laughs> um, but it is really the system that needs to be optimized. And it's actually the foundation for health. So it is the structural component and the locomotion component, but it is also the metabolic component. It is also related to cognition, mood, brain. It is one of the biggest tissues that you can optimize to protect against Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's is type three diabetes of the brain. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, in your youth and, you know, maybe the people listening are like, well, I don't need to worry about Alzheimer's, but actually someone you love probably does. So muscle centric medicine, and there's really two components of my practice. I have, you know, my husband is a Navy SEAL. I take care of uh, very high performers. So okay. whether it's elite military operators, Olympians, athletes, I take mm -hmm. care of a group that is looking for optimization. And that means optimization. When you think about skeletal muscle, you think about the hormonal system, you know, you think about the endocrine system, you think about lowering inflammation, you mm -hmm. think about nutrition, you can't avoid that. Right. And you think about proper supplementation. And then the other group that I see are patients that have been to 14 other doctors they still have digestive problems or they have hypothyroidism and no one can figure it out. Mm -hmm. That's the fun, right? So there's that fun <laughs> of really being the detective and figuring out because there's a reason for everything. It's mm -hmm. not just, you know, oh, you're fine and move on. But um, yeah, so those are really the two groups of individuals that I see. Mm -hmm. um, and muscle-centric medicine is all about optimization. Mm -hmm. And what are the ways that we can optimize our muscle mass? Well, for, uh, you know, opportunities that individuals can take on their own, that is definitely nutrition orientation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And skeletal muscle is stimulated largely two ways, as you know, training mm -hmm. and dietary protein. And really it's not the protein per se, it's the amino acid profile, which is mm -hmm. what defines a high quality protein. Um, and I know CrossFit is very tied deeply in the paleo mm -hmm. sphere. So it is really thinking about high quality animal proteins delivered at a 
uh, discrete bolus. So it's not about drinking a protein shake over days. It's about getting, or over hours, who does it over days? Oh my God, <laughs> like, honey, how old is that protein I'm, shake? Hey. He's like, I see smells it. He says it's fine. <laughs> but really practical takeaway tips would be getting 30 to 55 grams of protein per meal mm-hmm. to optimize skeletal tissue. So there is a range because it is about that amino acid load, the essential amino acids. So that's important. I just want to emphasize that because I think, you know, not a lot of people realize how important it is to get that above that threshold at each meal. And there's a difference between, you know, eating a big meal with a lot of protein at dinner and, you know, snacking throughout the day or not getting as much with breakfast and lunch versus getting those three meals. And this is one of the things I remember most from your talk. I think you were talking about the protage study where needing at least that 30 grams of protein three times a day at each meal to maximize muscle synthesis. synthesis. Interesting. I've evolved some of those concepts and now, um, what, so as it relates to muscle mass and recovery, it's very interesting optimizing for protein intake post-training, you do 30 to 55 grams, it will help optimize that robust response of muscle protein synthesis. So one of the things that I do with the athletes is we determine how much protein they need, and then we decide what's left over. You know, are they able to manage fats better? Do they have a preference for fats or carbohydrates, depending on their their training? Um, But you optimize for protein first. And what Mm -hmm. I typically recommend is one gram of pound per ideal body weight. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you can put that in, there's a couple ways to do it depends on what your goal is. So if your goal is body composition, you could easily bookend two meals of 50, 55 grams and a small snack in between. And if you do that, you are still hitting two meals that are optimizing for muscle protein synthesis for someone who's a CrossFitter that might be perfectly fine because you're making up for skeletal muscle. You're stimulating skeletal muscle by hard training. And then, you know, a typical individual who's just transitioning into this style of eating three meals a day, um, kind of pulsed every four to five hours Mm -hmm. is another great way to do it. So there's different strategies that can be very effective. That's great. And it makes it standing that it's a leucine threshold. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we won't go too uh, deep into the science, but leucine is one of the branch chain amino acids. Right now we hear this argue there, everyone's arguing about plant-based versus animal-based mm-hmm. proteins. And it's, it's interesting. It's like arguing the sky's blue, <laughs> are hard, fast biological numbers that don't change. Mm-hmm. This is just simply what it is. Mm-hmm. The sky is blue. There's a law of gravity. Um, you know, beef has this, you know, two and a half grams of leucine for every 30 grams. Hemp protein has less. It takes six cups of quinoa to equal one small chicken breast. These are just the biological values. Mm -hmm. So I I think understanding that there's quite a bit of confusion and really deeply getting that plant protein is different while plant protein is not bad. It's going to take more to optimize the skeletal muscle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a great, a great point. I want to dive into that further, but first, can you just explain why leucine is so important and how to know if you're getting enough? You said you need two and a half grams for each of these meals or boluses, but how do you know you're getting enough leucine? You, that is a great question. And to make it easy for people, when you hit that minimum of 30 grams of protein, then mm-hmm. you know, you are getting enough leucine of a high quality animal-based protein, whether it's beef or chicken or fish, fish has a little lower 
mm-hmm. losing um, content, but you can easily, I have a, a protocol. One of my protocols online, which is free for everybody, it has lists. It's really about getting that 30 to 55 grams. And you've hit that threshold. Whey protein is different. Whey mm-hmm. protein has a higher leucine content for a smaller amount of uh, protein. So you could get 20 grams of protein total in a whey protein shake, but you're hitting that leucine threshold. Okay. What's interesting though, is for muscle protein synthesis, you actually need all the amino acids, mm-hmm. but leucine is like, turning the car on. So it's the key to the car and okay. then the gas is all the other amino acids. So you need all of them, mm-hmm. but you can't get around that. You need to start the car. Got it. So if you have all the other ones, but you don't have enough leucine, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. And if you, right, you need all the, you need all the amino acids. Mm-hmm. Got it. Makes sense. So back to some of the plant-based proteins, obviously this is a huge controversial topic. We live in a world where you know, nutrition is, it's it's like religion. It's extremely controversial. And it seems like more and more I'm encountering patients who are trying to eat more plant-based and I'm seeing less and less protein in their diets. And it's hard, it's a hard conversation to have. um, But we're also seeing a lot of health problems and people aren't getting enough of the nutrients that are found in animal protein. So can you just speak from your experience, some of the dangers of not getting enough, um, animal-based protein and why, why animal-based protein is actually good for our health. Absolutely. Now there are two components to this. Number one, the age in which the individual is doing this. Mm-hmm. And number two, the physical aspect of, you know, what it is that their lifestyle is like. I will tell you that beef, for example, beef or lamb or bison, these are nutrient dense foods. They have B vitamins, bioavailable iron, zinc, selenium. They have nutrients that are so important to overall wellness. Mm-hmm. That's it's a food matrix. It's not just the protein content. It's, it's the food matrix of the components that are in that. For example, whey protein has alpha lactoalbumin. It has Mm -hmm. prebiotics. It has components that augment the immune system. It has all these other properties. One of the most dangerous things that happens when you tell an individual to go more plant-based is that they don't eat more broccoli or they don't eat more spinach. It is a luxury to be able to have animal-based products. The rest Mm -hmm. of the world is not as lucky as we are, number one. So when you remove a high quality animal protein, you have to replace it with something else. Mm -hmm. And what individuals typically replace it with is excess carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And carbohydrates really need to be thought of in a meal threshold. Anything over 40 grams essentially needs to be earned through exercise. Most individuals are not training nearly as hard as they should be. The metabolic, the unintended metabolic consequences of going more plant-based are devastating. Now, I did a fellowship in geriatrics at WashU, which is Mm -hmm. phenomenal school. I have seen the end result of midlife, low-protein diets. Mm -hmm. An individual falls, breaks a hip, that's it. It is a whole different quality of life when an individual is in a nursing home Mm -hmm. because they don't have enough muscle strength. They, throughout their life, 
were a little overweight or not getting enough high quality nutrients. I will never forget one of the vegetarian patients, literally bed bound. And it was devastating to watch. It's devastating. Mm -hmm. While individuals can argue is, you know, you know, are animals bad for the environment, which they're not. We know from the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, is that electricity, transportation, and industry create 80 plus percent of greenhouse gas effects. So the narrative that we should remove an entire food group and that's going to somehow change, you know, where cattle and dairy account for 3.5% or so of all environmental impact in the U.S. If you really care about the environment, it's not that you stop eating meat, it's that you don't travel anymore, mm -hmm. right? Or you don't eat avocado toast if you live in Montana. <laughs> there are other ways that we think about it. So if you decide to reduce the dietary protein, you have to make up for the calories somehow. And there's something called the protein leverage hypothesis where individuals will continue to feed to get those essential amino acids. Mm -hmm. And listen, I could talk about this for five hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could go but on. I, I wanna make it really user-friendly for people and, and individuals in the CrossFit arena are working out at such a capacity that their system in their youth could probably make up for that lower protein intake because they're, they're training so hard. Mm -hmm. The next question would be though is, how will that take an individual to optimization? And listen, sometimes plant-based and vegetarian diets are going to be better for an individual. Mm -hmm. Everybody is their own unique and of one. It's true. There's a paper that just came out in Nature that Don was a co-author on and actually talked about how it's a proof of concept and it was a rodent study, but it actually was one of the, it's the first of its kind. And it actually shows how those individuals that eat a higher plant-based diets, their microbiome becomes more like ruminants. Mm. which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. The question then becomes at what percent of the population actually is going to do well on that. And it's very, very. Right. And of course it is very individual. We can't give recommendations for an entire population, but um, you know, and but there's what we also know is that they need dietary protein. What we do know is no matter how you decide to break it down, we do it is very clear for muscle mass and muscle health that mm -hmm. you do need to dose protein appropriately, mm -hmm. especially as individuals age or if there's some catabolic um, uh, process going on. Mm -hmm. One of the concerns and the narratives about eating too much animal protein is that it could contribute to cancer. And you even have um, researchers like Walter Longo, who I've had him on the podcast before, and he really advocates for a lower protein lower animal protein diet, um, citing that, you know, the protein is going to contribute, can contribute to, um, cancer. So how do you respond to or make sense of that? Great question. What's the mechanism of action? If there is a reason, if mm -hmm. someone making a statement, and I'm very familiar with Walter Longo's work, mm -hmm. who by the way, promotes the fasting mimicking diet and is mm -hmm. a largely vegan. The question then becomes, what is the mechanism of action that protein is going to cause cancer? Mm -hmm. And here's what they've come up with. They say it's stimulation of mechanistic target of rapamycin. So it's an mTOR stimulation that in their working model Cree is, is what promotes cancer, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. mTOR, this mechanistic tar target of rapamycin, this complex is in all tissues. It's in heart, it's in brain, it's in liver, it's in muscle. Are you ready mm -hmm. for this? mTOR, in, which is in skeletal muscle, 
is exquisitely sensitive to amino acids. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's required to stimulate to help with muscle protein synthesis. Okay. Mm -hmm. Saying that protein causes cancer is literally like saying building muscle is going to cause cancer. Mm. mTOR in liver, pancreas, is exquisitely sensitive to the overconsumption of calories. Excess calories drives mTOR, typically in a carbohydrate excess insulin mm-hmm. model. If an individual really cares about and is worried about mTOR, you reduce snacking and you are not in caloric excess. You are not in excess carbohydrates. You are not pushing insulin. But they forgot to talk about all that. Mm. Protein is sensitive or mTOR is sensitive in skeletal muscle to protein. So we want it. It's a good thing in muscle, but in other tissues, it can potentially have a negative impact. In other tissues, it's not exquisitely sensitive to protein. Mm -hmm. To say that it, that amino acids are going to stimulate mTOR in the heart. It's much, it's much more sensitive to excess calories and excess carbohydrates. Got it. That's also, the best explanation, explanation that I've heard. <laughs> wait, and there's other things. Yeah. People can look at, uh, Klerfeld, uh, his name is Kler, uh, Klerfeld maybe. Anyway, if you look at the risk ratio of protein and cancer, they've done this, by the way, it's very mm-hmm. concerning for people. Mm-hmm. Do you know what, so a relative risk or risk ratio is the, the concept that if you do this thing, this is the result, this is your risk, your mm-hmm. relative risk. In order for it to be clinically significant, it has to be above two. Mm-hmm. For example, smoking and cancer, smoking and lung cancer, the relative risk the, or the risk ratio is 12. Okay. They have done multiple, multiple analysis. And the relative risk of dietary protein and cancer is, guess what it is? Point less than one. 1.2. 1.2. All right. Yeah. Is that clinically significant? No. No, it's not. But we do know, if we listen to Walter Longo's advice, we know for a fact that aging tissues will be devastated on a, I think he recommends 0.3 grams per kilogram. Mm-hmm. That's lower than the RDA, which is baseline for just maintaining health. Yeah. You cannot argue Walter Longo's point is correct. Absolutely. Without a doubt, not to mention they, a group of protein researchers, when he came out with some of his studies, they issued a whole letter. People can look at the letter, but he was actually, um, you know, there were certain groups that were on the editorial board of the the journal. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is. This is amazing. I'm going to link to all of these things too. When we post and the podcast. I will, you can Google, you can look at Stu Phillips, Don Lehman. You can look at the rebuttal paper because they actually ran through all the statistical analysis mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and pointed out all the errors in the study. Mm-hmm. And that was actually published on the rebuttal to the paper with all the world-class protein researchers, because this information is dangerous to sell, to tell people to reduce dietary protein is absolutely devastating and it's dangerous information. It's deeply irresponsible. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's irresponsible. Protein doesn't cause cancer. If you care about cancer, you, I mean, you have to tell me what's the mechanism of action because I just told you amino acids stimulate mTOR and skeletal muscle. Mm-hmm. But if you are a vegan or vegetarian, your diet is all, 
is going to be all largely carbohydrates. And, and then you're stimulating it in your liver, liver, pancreas, mm-hmm. all these other tissues. Mm-hmm. It's really about this excess calories, excess insulin, excess carbohydrates, and then multiple snacking, multiple stimulations. It's really bad. It's really a, a bad narrative. And if you can't find the rebuttal, I, I can easily send that to you. And it was a, a whole paper. So you, people have to really think for themselves and really find sources that they trust. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing more so now than ever before is we have the mouse with the megaphone. You have a few groups that are controlling the narrative. Mm-hmm. And Hollywood and media is one of those groups. Game changers, mm-hmm. that's a whole other story. Yeah. That's entertainment. James yeah. Cameron, James Cameron paid 130, you know, was it invested $130 million in a pea protein when the movie came out. Yeah. It's crazy. And there's it's all crazy. these other aspects and it, mm-hmm. science just doesn't support it. But what's happened is while other people are vying for your money, you know, I, I've been at the other end. Mm-hmm. People Not are getting sick. I'm willing to speak out about it because, you know, when you're doing a geriatric fellowship, you are working in a nursing home. You mm-hmm. are seeing 30 patients a day. By the end of that block, the majority of those patients haven't survived. Mm-hmm. It's devastating. And while people are all arguing in the middle and listening to this nonsense, they haven't been at the other end. Nobody's going to mm-hmm. argue going to reduce protein. Nobody in their right mind. If they're in the clinic seeing patients, we're not going to say that. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> well, I'm glad you are. I'm glad you are fighting against this. I know it's an uphill battle sometimes, but um, can you share also just some examples of what you see in patients who maybe come to see you? Yeah. They're on a very low protein diet. Nobody what kind of symptoms on a low protein diet. <laughs> okay. Maybe not. not. I mean, I do get some uh, vegans and vegetarians and they typically feel horrible and their blood work. They it's their methylmalonic acid. Their iron is low. Their ferritin is low. Their hair is falling out. Their teeth are a mess. Um, but I've only had truthfully, I've been seeing patients since 2006 and I have owned my own practice, this practice for three years. And I would say in that entire time, I have seen maybe 10 vegan vegetarian patients. Okay. And what, I don't know if any of those end up incorporating some animal protein or what, what is sort of the transition that you see? Cause I, I see this, I've seen this a few times, even in the last week where, someone comes and they're, they think they're doing something good for their health by eating a vegan vegetarian diet or eating low protein, but they're having a lot of symptoms. Um, and then what do you see if they're able to incorporate or maybe balance out the protein that they're taking better? Do you see resolution of those symptoms or how do you notice changes in how they feel? Their energy increases. One, I had one patient who's actually, I mentor her now. She's an amazing human. Her name is Nina. Mm-hmm. And she was largely fruititarian. I had two <laughs> girls. I had Nina and Olivia, who are just, I love these girls. They were very plant-based, very, they were eating a ton of fruit and mm-hmm. they felt terrible. Both of them. Their body composition was off. They had put on weight and we slowly transitioned them. And I sat down, I had, I had a heart to heart. I said, let's just try this because mm-hmm. they were doing it, not for ethical reasons. They were doing it because they thought it was the right thing to do for their health. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's just try this. Let's try this. Let's see what happens. And they felt so much better. And, you know, Nina's hair had been falling out and Olivia was really struggling with energy and brain fog. And they felt so much better. Mm-hmm. 
that it was very easy to encourage them to continue on the path. And they started slow. Mm -hmm. We started reworking their macros over the day. They would start with protein. Even if it was 20 grams, it's fine. When you're younger, you can go through, you can get away with less Mm -hmm. 20 grams of protein. We capped the carbohydrate threshold at 30, 30 to 40, because they weren't really training hard at the time. Mm -hmm. And by balancing their blood sugar and by balancing their nutrients, getting more high quality nutrients, getting more iron and zinc felt so much better. That's amazing. How do you approach? So you mentioned about the protein goals and then you mentioned carbohydrates, not, you know, unless you're earning more by exercise, you want to go above a 40 at each meal, but how do you approach the rest of filling out the diet and the calories and emphasis on quality versus quantity and working with those carb and fat ratios as well? It's all personal preference. People inherently know if they're better at utilizing fat versus utilizing carbohydrates and how much fiber they're going to need people Mm -hmm. inherently. And you target their protein goal. You define how, you know, for me personally, I'm a very low carbohydrate person. Mm-hmm. I am uh, optimal protein, but low carbs and maybe moderate fat. I might have 15 grams of fat per meal, mm-hmm. maybe 20. I'm not a huge eater for individuals, depending on if they're having issues with sleep, you might augment more carbohydrates towards the evening. Uh, it's all a matter of taste and it can change with the seasons. As long as mm-hmm. protein remains constant, you can play around with the carbohydrates and fats. And maybe if they're going through or they're working for a peak performance, you know, typically the athletes do better with a one-to-one ratio of carbohydrates, proteins, you augment fat. But again, it totally depends on the person, mm-hmm. totally depends on their training status, depends on their baseline body fat, depends on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's that self-experimentation. You mentioned it's different in different seasons. And I know you also have two young kids. And so you've been through, hold on. I have a 22 month old. Okay. And I have a three and a half month old (laughs) saying I have two young kids. Totally understatement. If there are any moms out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yes. Um, So could you share with us how you approached any changes to your diet and to your exercise through pregnancy and postpartum. And now, you know, being a mom with all that comes with that. Yeah. I trained through both pregnancies. I did a lot of kettlebells, um, did a lot of kettlebell swings. I did mm-hmm. a lot of pressing. I did deadlifting and squatting the whole pregnancy. Um, I didn't do a ton of cardio and I trained four days a week. Mm-hmm. you know, through the, it becomes a lot harder. You become more tired, but consistently four days a week as heavy as mm-hmm. I could go. And postpartum, I actually started working out right away. I gave it the first two weeks where I was just kind of walking, not doing mm-hmm. too much. And mm-hmm. then I was back in the gym by week three. Mm-hmm. And now I'm rebuilding my foundation because I had two babies in under two years. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. And all of a sudden you get really soft. You just, you have a lot of estrogen and and things change. Mm -hmm. Now I am building back the foundation because I Mm -hmm. don't want to get injured. That will just totally put me out. Mm -hmm. Thanks for Like this morning I did 10 rounds of the air dime, Mm -hmm. full out after full out effort, 20 seconds on. And then actually I thought I could do 20 seconds off, but I needed a little bit of a break. I was just Mm -hmm. so wounded. And yeah. then I did uh, rounds of kettlebell swings, 45 or 40. It was a 20 kg kettlebell. Mm-hmm. So light, 
mm-hmm. nothing crazy. And That's then I'll great. go back and do some training this afternoon. That's great. And how about changes to your diet? Right now I'm breastfeeding, but I would say I won't eat till maybe one or two o'clock for me. Mm-hmm. I'll see patients as soon as this interview is over. I'll see patients three days a week. I do a pretty um, tight feeding window might mm-hmm. be two to eight. And that's just what works for me. It could be mm-hmm. one, you know, noon to eight or one to eight. It just depends. And it's higher protein. We have a lot of bison, we do a lot of ground beef. We order from uh, Piedmontese, mm-hmm. certified Piedmontese, which are great. And I have a, a discount code for them. I have no financial mm-hmm. connection with them, but if your listeners want 25% off, I got it. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll link to that. So I'll, I'll give it to you guys. It's go for uh, it. G lion. Okay. Um, and she can put it in the show notes. So we Perfect. use a lot of certified Piedmontese, which is very mm-hmm. lean. And, you know, last night I made burgers and chicken wings. Yum. <laughs> and my kid has no idea. She eats this stuff. She has no idea what she's eating. <laughs> she gets liver, she gets beef, and she'll ask for it. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and did you change any of, uh, any of the approach to nutrition during pregnancy or postpartum while you're breastfeeding? I would say that I had more carbs during pregnancy because I was, I was pretty nauseous. My mm-hmm. first pregnancy had hygramesis gravidum, mm. which is awful. I threw awful. up between four and 10 times a day. I oh still, God. I would go work out. I do a set throw up. <laughs> I was, <terrible>. oh. <laughs> I still did it. Right. Because that's your new normal and you have to mm-hmm. be able to have the mindset that you control what you can control. And if you can't control it, you can still execute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My diet was higher in carbohydrates simply because I was really sick. For the second pregnancy, I was able to eat protein. I, I would say beef made me a little nauseous, but chicken was my go-to eggs. I ate eggs every morning. It has high amount of choline, great for the baby's brain, great for your mommy's brain. Mm-hmm. And now postpartum breastfeeding, I'll only do that for six months total. Mm-hmm my diet really hasn't changed. I'm eating a little more berries than I would normally mm-hmm. because it's summer and I do find that my milk production really goes down without any carbs. Great. And you mentioned, you know, your daughter just expects as normal to eat bison and chicken wings and organ meats and all kinds of things. Um, how do you, do you approach for your kids? Are they going to just eat the same things that you eat or do you make any changes to them as they're growing and developing? they get what we eat because we eat a really high nutritious diet. I will say mm-hmm. high density, nutrient dense diet. Shane, my husband is a little more lenient. I, okay. went, I went to go give a talk at women in business <laughs> in St. Louis and Shane, I came back and, uh, oh wait, no, it wasn't that talk. It was a different talk. It was in, actually, it was in the city because I just left for the night. And then in the morning I asked her, I said, Aries, what do you want for breakfast? And she said, pizza. Jane <laughs> had fed her pizza. He totally got busted the night before. But otherwise, she, you know, when she was dad, she might get a little sure. cauliflower pizza or something that I would normally not feed her. But I do try to expose her to everything. I think that's important. That's great. That's great. Amazing. Well, I want to start wrapping up. So there's three questions I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. The first one is what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? The three things I do that have the biggest positive impact on my health. Nutrition is key. You Mm -hmm. can't get away from it. Nutrition is key. 
I, in the morning I get up, I get sunlight right in my eyes. I'll do sunlight. Mm-hmm. I'll do red light. I have, you know, I got a lot of stuff to do. I, it's very easy for me to stay inside, but I work to anchor that circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. There's more than three, but <laughs> we can hear them all. That's good. And I'm going to say that you're, I'm going to try to say something different because I think that your listeners probably have already heard sleep and hydration and that's really boring, mm-hmm. but re, so I'm going to try to give a few ones that are different, retraining your circadian rhythm and making mm-hmm. sure that you're getting sunlight directly in your eyes first thing in the morning. And what I will tell you that I do is I write out what my day is going to be like. Mm-hmm. And I say all the great things that are going to happen. I totally make it up. I design my day for a lack mm-hmm. of a better term. I love and that. It entrains a certain level of positivity. Mm-hmm. I and love that, that. A different way of thinking about health because really health begins in the mind too, right? There mm-hmm. are the in, there's the inner game that you have to play. And then there's the outer game that you have to play. I do the things for the outer game, which is light, nutrition, and sleep. And that's super boring. But then the inner game is being very intentional. Mm-hmm. And I write all the things that are going to go well today. And what kind of magic I'm going to create, what is going to manifest into something super cool. And I'm very intentional about that. That's amazing. Design your day. I love it. For, for your light in the morning, what does that look like for you? Are you sitting outside drinking coffee? Are you going for a walk? Or how do you try to get yes. that sunlight oh, first thing in the morning? It depends. Sometimes we, have, we live on a forest preserve. So I will mm. open up all the windows and the light comes all right in. Amazing. And then on the side, I'll have a red light and use a red light or... Mm-hmm you know, on the weekends, I grab my coffee and take the kids right outside immediately. Love it. Love it. Love it. What is one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something you're working on? Sleeping through the night. I mean, I have two little mm-hmm. kids. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't know. That's a hard one. <laughs> I don't really know what to do at this point, but I, I think that that's probably the biggest one. Yeah. You know, and I'd love to get right now I'm training lighter than I'd ever like to. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is probably the biggest struggle is getting, you know, from being pretty fit to having to rebuild, go through the foundations of rebuilding Mm -hmm. training. And um, so getting there. That's hard. That's hard. Any tips for trying to maximize sleep with two infants? Nope. (laughs) Nope. Just just do the best you can. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Sleep on the sofa. <laughs> so last night, last time so we split the days, last night was Shane's night, but then the baby he'll just he'll sleep and he'll rock and the baby's still screaming. <laughs> so I had to go for I'm like, this is just not working out because the baby's still keeping me up. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, there, there's nothing you can do. Well, you can do earplugs and an eye mask. <laughs> Someone's gotta get up. Right, right. Um, all right, last question is what does a healthy life look like to you? I'm living it. It's amazing. You have got, you got to get your pillars down. You got to get your nutrition. You got to get, you know, so you have to get your pillars down, your external game down. And then I would say really finding, and this is, this is really important. Finding something that you're so passionate about that the work and the play are together. Mm-hmm. People ask me, do I have hobbies and do I like doing other things? Yeah. My work is my hobby, but it's also mm-hmm. my work. Mm-hmm. And if you create a life that is super in flow, then the hormones of stress are very limited. You might have stress with the excitement of creating something new for a business or you know, figuring out something new for a patient, but to really live a happy, healthy life, it's not, there are the, the foundational stuff that you have to do. Mm-hmm. Nutrition, the training, the sleep, the light, the supplements, you know, and if you have any kind of underlying health issue, you have to get that. 
with a non-narrative. So there can't be a narrative about it, but you got to get that together. Mm-hmm. And then the other aspect is also doing that inner housekeeping. So you figure out the things that you love. You make that how you spend the majority of your day. You've done a great job at that. And then you're inspired. Mm-hmm. And you mitigate the highs and lows of cortisol and blood sugar and, and all that stuff. And then you can really see what you're all about and how you're going to show up optimally. Absolutely. That's beautiful. I love it. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I am so glad that you're doing the work that you're doing and I'm excited to share this with my audience. And hopefully now um, they'll have a little more information just about how to maximize their muscle and their muscle function and muscle mass for their health. So thank you so much. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people. 